Kia ora and welcome to Beyond Consultation, a podcast that will help you in your public or community sector work to increase your impact by doing more than just ticking the box of consultation. I'm Paul McGregor from Business Lab, and we're interested in the mindsets and methods of people who are making a bigger impact by working collaboratively with communities, industries, and other organizations. Ma mihi mote Kia ora and welcome to episode 55. It's so nice to have you joining me wherever you are. If you're in the kitchen cooking dinner or if you're on the train going out for a run for a walk, you're going to love today's conversation. And the spark for it came maybe six, seven months ago now. We were designing our reframe program, which is for people who are trying to change the way their organization works with the communities they serve. And as part of that, we had lots of conversations with people who could shape up what that program could be. One of those people was Hamish Lindop, whose job title is an Innovation Capability Coach at Auckland Council. And since then, we've been exchanging stories and ideas on LinkedIn, along with his amazing colleague, Baruch Jacob, kia ora to you Baruch if you're listening, he's also an innovation capability coach at Auckland Council and both of them are very thoughtful New Zealanders and very thoughtful in particular about their place as tangata tiriti, that is a person of the treaty. And so I have to say when Hamish contacted me asking if I could help spread the word about the participatory cities approach from the UK, I kind of was scratching my head and I was a bit skeptical. My initial reaction was, why do we need another approach from the UK? We've already drawn enough from the UK experience. We need to draw from what is unique here in this country now. And I was a bit surprised that Hamish was the person sharing that with me. But I was also curious, what is a participatory city? I looked at the website in the UK and it was talking about being a new approach to making change. And you know, that's a big claim. And so I was also wondering, well, if that hype is justified, what might we learn from our friends in the UK? And after a while, I realized I'd fallen into the either or thinking trap, thinking that, oh, either we need to grow from these UK approaches or we grow from New Zealand values and approaches. But of course, it's not an either or. We can do both. We can learn from each other. So this conversation today is the first of two. Today, you will be hearing from Tessie Britton, who is the key person behind this participatory cities approach. And when she explained how it's a new approach, it was a light bulb moment for me. And I went, ah, okay. And the skepticism fell away. The, the key idea that really stuck with me was this idea of creating a platform. And I've heard people talk about platforms, you know, in the context of social media. Facebook is a platform and then it allows other people to create, grow and do things off the back of the platform provided by Meta, the company. And so kind of a similar idea here. Well, what is the platform that is the set of resources, tools, technologies, connections, processes, ideas that can allow people to connect in their community and take ownership of the actions that they want to see in the community. We had a lovely conversation, the three of us, exploring where it had come from, both in Tessie's own history and what it actually looks like on the ground and how we might be able to grow this approach 
in a way that makes sense for you and your community. I should also say stick around to the end because then Hamish shares his experiences. This episode left me excited about growing community and connections in my own neighbourhood where I live in Fakatu Nelson. So I hope it can do the same for you. So without any further ado from me, please welcome to the show Hamish Lindop and Tessie Britton. I'm so pleased to have not one, but two people on the call with me. So Hamish Lindop, who works for Auckland Council and has been an absolute legend in behind the scenes arranging a couple of conversations. So kia ora to you, Hamish, and welcome. Kia ora. Thanks, thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> Fantastic. And for Hamish and I, it is 7.42 in the evening, but we also have Tessie Britton on the podcast today. And for you, Tessie, it must be 8... 42 in the morning something like that it is. It is. so you are coming to us from over in the UK so welcome to you thanks very much Paul hey well to warm us up into this conversation but also to let other people know a bit more about the two of you I would love to let you introduce yourselves to people listening and maybe a bit of a frame for that is well here in New Zealand, we talk about tu ranga waiwai, Tessie, which is what we call a place to stand. What's an important place to you or a place that you connect to really strongly? That might be nice to share with people, along with a little bit of your work history and how you've come to where you are. So I'll pass it to you first, Tessie. Thanks, Paul. As you started with a nice, difficult question. <laughs> <laughs> I've just actually up sticks and moved to Edinburgh. So from the south of England, I'm sort of finding a new place to stand and I'm really loving it here. So we've moved from a very rural place to a, a city, you know, right in the mid middle of the city. So, yeah, it's a very different, different, different place to live at the moment. So you, you want a little bit of my background and the yeah. origins of the work. And I think, I think my, my background has influenced my work a great deal. So I was, I was born in Zimbabwe and lived in South Africa for a large part of my childhood. I sort of split mm. my childhood between the UK and, and South Africa. But I, you know, the time I was living there was in the middle of apartheid. And I think one of the, the formative experiences I had was that as a child, we, we lived outside of Johannesburg in quite a rural area. And I spent a lot of 90% of my time outdoors playing with local children of all colors and backgrounds. And when I was about seven, my parents dressed me up in a school uniform and took me to an, an all white, all girls, all Catholic oh, school. Wow. Yeah, And, you know, that was my first experience. And even at the age of seven, I found it quite a, <laughs> quite a strange experience. And yeah. I think historically looking at how apartheid was created, you know, it, it happened incredibly quickly, but they basically designed the whole country for separation. So from buses to benches to where you live, everything was designed for separation. Mm. And I guess when I started to see projects that citizens were doing across the world probably you know 15 years ago some of them go back a lot you know many of them go back much further than that but there was a real surgence of them about 15 years ago and aided by the internet and all the sort of DIY capability that that 
brought to people. I could see that people were, were inventing a new model. I didn't know what it was really, but they were inventing a new way of doing things in their neighborhoods, which fell outside of the normal sort of charity or campaigning or, you know, counseling kind of roles. And they basically sort of captured my imagination. And I started <laughs> to think, imagine what it would be like to live in a neighborhood that had tons of this stuff, not just like one project or three projects per borough, but like hundreds of projects. What mm. would it like? Would it change the way it is to live? And so that really captured my imagination. So that's what I've really been working on and thinking that if if you can design a whole infrastructure, a whole system in a in a country for separation, then can't we break can't we design a, a structure and infrastructures for connection and you know friendship? Yeah. Tessie, that is a powerful way of viewing your work. So thank you for sharing your story. And I could identify with some of what you shared. My mother and my brother were born in South Africa and my, my dad was a Kiwi. So he went over for three weeks and came back three years later with a wife and a kid. And that was just as apartheid was um, sort of being dismantled, if that's the right word. So early early 90s. Yeah, yeah, yeah some, something like that. Mm. Well, thank you. And I'll pass it over to you, Hamish. What What is a place that you stand on? And what's a little bit of your work history in this, this scene? What, what you talked about, Jesse, triggered a, a part of my Tūrunga Waiwai from, from growing up. I grew up in, in Copper Bay and Howick and Howick College where I went to school backed onto a whole lot of pastures. And I can remember sitting on my, my mountain bike, looking at all these pastures turn into a new suburb. And that new suburb had many Asian families. So our, our high school turned into 40% Asian by the time I got there. And there was something about the Asian cultures that really attracted me to it. So there was a a small Taiwanese, all Taiwanese boys basketball league. And I was the only white guy in it. It was like the secret Taiwanese basketball league. And then I ended up going to Taiwan and living there for five years and teaching oh, wow. English, which is where I met my, my Japanese partner, Lily. So maybe oh, another part of my Tūrunga Waiwai feels like ancient China for some reason, although I've never been to ancient China, but my Chinese doctor helps me to feel centered and, and grounded a lot in terms of professional background. So when I came back from Taiwan, I tried being a primary school teacher in Mangani East Primary School and, and lasted about six months at that. <laughs> well, well, <laughs> my wife's a primary school teacher, so I think you've done well for six months from some uh, of the stories I, was, I, I was hear. Destroyed, I was destroyed out of that and landed in libraries after that in Central Library and it was time for innovation in libraries so I started the first makerspace in Central Library in a broom closet <laughs> with, our friend, with our friend Baruch and now it's oh, yes. in the big big grand space on, on the ground floor and yeah kind of was into all that makerspace stuff and the digital stuff but I sort of think hmm like Maybe digital this and digital that might not be the, the, the thing that we really need and got into social innovation. Did a social lab in Tamaki focused on youth well-being. And that was interesting because that's sort of Zaid Hassan's model of social labs. But we took it into community. And one of the things was like 
it's very like systems thinking and stuff and a lot of community were like we're out we're done this is too thinking and at the same time doing rounds of co-design training with lots of library staff and seeing people come to ideation sessions and stuff and starting to think oh like wow people are starting to really spark up and take ownership of of these services that we're designing but then maybe we take the services back to deliver them at the end of the day after mm -hmm. co-designing them with but i started to see hey wow if, if more and more and more people got into this co-design stuff and got habituated to it then what would that be like and that's kind of about the time that participatory city started to pop onto my twitter feed and i was like ah so so we could be a platform and instead of like inviting people into co-design mm -hmm. things with us we could we could be a platform and support them to co-design mm -hmm. things with each other because i'd, I'd always thought with with libraries oh cool you can throw a stone in any direction and hit a community need and we've got this scarce resource what do we do with it? And and that was sort of a despairing question for me. But when I started to think about a platform, um, if public services operators, this platform, then mm. you create multiplier effects in terms of what, what you can enable. So, yeah. Mm. Hamish, I can see Tessie writing notes. I think maybe she's going, oh, that's such a great way to describe what we do. I don't know. I mean, Tessie. I've written down, I've written down yeah. too thinky. And I thought that's, yeah. <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's very true, though. We we can have a bias towards thinking. Oh, yeah. Social thinking. labs are too thinky. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. That's what you yeah. said, Hamish. And I yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Um, I thought you meant I was too thinking, which should also probably be true. Yeah. No. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, there's also the, it's too talky. You know, there's also, when yeah. people do lots yeah. of talk with no action. Yeah. So there's, there's both of those. be helpful for people listening who are new to participatory cities can you take us back to a sort of seven or eight years ago you know you talked about seeing these seeds of this new way of working and being together in a community what was going on for you at that time what was going on for me at that time what do you mean sorry <laughs> what, I, what i mean is so where are you what are you seeing what make, made you look around and go, okay, I'm noticing this sort of new approach? I think it was really that I saw I had a, had a, I had a blog and I was constantly looking for new inspiration of this kind. I also, through the blog, connected with, with people in different countries and they were highlighting different projects to me. And I made several visits to other countries, particularly in Europe and the Netherlands, where a lot of this stuff is, you know, there's a density of this kind of activity. And actually, right. that was just really fascinating being able to visit the projects and see how they were developed. So I think a lot of a lot of the stories that I was sort of trying to understand was how and why these projects got developed. And mm. I think what emerged from that was just seeing that these were outside of the current model 
And then also over over a period of time. Can I just jump in there and ask Tessie? Oh. You say outside of the current model. So what what makes them different in your? I think the the sort of the the broader analysis of you know if you're sitting at home looking out at the world and thinking I want to contribute to the world, how might I do it? I think there are a number of sort of very well established, very mature ways of doing that. One of them is to stand for election and be part of the representative. Yep. Um, governance. Another one is to work for charity, do charity work. Another one is to campaign for or against particular things, but it's a mm. challenge model. We contribute as consumers and we also had a sort of quite a well-established sort of associational model where clubs and groups cluster together yeah. to do particular things. And the types of projects I was seeing was that the it was much more of a sort of peer-to-peer -peer model that where people were working on an equal footing so yeah. it wasn't sort of people who had had resources doing things for less fortunate and it was about bringing people together and they were doing it in an incredibly creative way so you know at that time I'd done a lot of participation myself I'd been on committees I'd mm -hmm. done challenge work I'd done charity work and I could see there was something different going on because in a lot of those instances you're sort of you know committee meetings there's there's three people and they're one dog yeah. And mm -hmm. what we were seeing with these projects that citizens were doing was they were just filling rooms up with, with you know, right. creative activities. So stuff that didn't take a lot of time, wasn't a lot of dedication, was very mm. interconnected. They were managing to get inclusive participation, very hands-on, very practical, very mm. open. And all of these sort of contributed to seeing it as a sort of, we we didn't label this at the beginning, but we now call it participation culture because it connects mm. very well with with that the spirit of participation culture as that term emerged through through the internet. So we saw people doing things very differently, but most importantly, that they were doing it inclusively. And you know, over time, with lots and lots of experimentation, could see that the stuff that we ask people to do normally or invite them to to do, such as Hamish just talking about these co-design sessions, yeah. has a really high threshold. You know, you have to want to sit there for two hours. You have to be yeah. pre-engaged. It, it's a very small number of people. And essentially, you're trying to harness their knowledge and understanding and creativity, whereas what I was seeing in the, these projects was that the outcomes were being created between people and they were the engines of it and that they were creating benefits and things which which services can't do, like mm. friendship and trust and community cohesion and a lot of health benefits are person to person. So yeah. these were doing things that, that services just can't do and it was yeah. recognizing the importance of it, I think, and Im imagining that a lot of these projects were also, they felt to me like they were saying, we've got all these other things, but they're not what we need. You know, it was it was citizens expressing their mm. desire for, for a different kind of community centre, one that mm. wasn't necessarily just delivering services, but was actually a centre for community to come together. So yeah. everything that we've done is based on citizens creating this new man expressing through their actions what they thought their neighbourhoods needed. Okay, so it sounds very inspiring, Tessie, these citizens organising on off their own bat, through their own resources, getting together and making things happen in a really creative way. 
I'm, I'm interested because you, you said there's these projects, this is seven years ago when you started to observe things. What was it that connected them all? How did you find out about them? Through through research, really, okay. and through people getting in touch and, and telling us about it. And that's sort of how Community Lovers Guide came about, which is a project which has essentially been on hold for a number of years while we've been doing Participatory City. Um, but that was a collection where... We had people from cities who would become sort of editors of an edition for their city and collect stories that sort of fitted the fitted the model. Okay. So it was so, through... so if I'm in my neighborhood and I'm I'm interested, I want to do something, there's this guide that can say, Paul, this is how you set one of these things up and this is what to think about. No, they were really stories of projects, live projects at the time. Oh, so okay. we, we ended up having hundreds of projects that that told us the story of how they got started and their origins and all right. that sort of thing. So we sort of started to see the this common sort of characteristics and identify that this was a that this was a new model. I guess the the, the other realization was that was that many of those projects that you'll see in Communities Lovers Guide don't exist anymore. Yeah. Because there is no infrastructure that mm. supports them. So they can't get funding because they're not. Yeah. going directly to service people's needs it's very hard to get funding so that really led to understanding that all of these other models like challenge and charity and so on they've got massive infrastructure yeah. including economic infrastructures people know how to write bids how to get funding mm. how to set up organizations how to you know fundraise through direct mail all of those things yeah. those are you know decades old well we don't even think about them we just get on and do it yeah yeah, and actually they, they're remarkably well well embedded in people's understanding, mm. their cultural understanding. So that sort of led to thinking about what do, if you really did want to have hundreds of these projects and for us to use these practical projects as a sort of way of sparking a different way of, of life, which was more, you know, more connected, more circular, more inclusive, what kind of infrastructure would you need? And that's really the... The question that participatory city has been been trying to answer is what will it take to do this thing that politicians have been asking us to do spontaneously mm. without any infrastructure and resourcing for decades mm. Mm. you know this isn't a new vision is it it's you know politicians have been wanting civic participation of all kinds to just burst mm. into their life on what i call the sort of magic wand approach and what we've discovered is that, yes, this vision is possible, but it takes a huge amount and mm. it needs you to think completely differently about public infrastructure and go back to that incredible imagination of a public library. That was that was mm. just revolutionary. You know, can you imagine that the guys, mm. some guys or women stood up sometime and said, we should have places full of books mm. that people can come in any time of day and, and take home. You know, it must have... Take them? What? But they'll never <laughs> give them back. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I have to say, I met the most incredibly inspiring woman in, in Halifax in Canada who runs the public library there. And, you know, when she took over, she just cancelled all the book finds that were on record. And she takes a completely different approach to, to books. But anyway, but that was mm. a radical idea, right? A, a public mm. library. And this is this feels like it's not that radical, <laughs> <laughs> by comparison but it's but it's of the same order it's saying you know people need this kind of infrastructure to thrive you mm. know they need to be able to read 
they also need to be able to come together. They need to be able to, to do all sorts of any manner of practical things together to do things in a much more collective way instead yeah. of doing everything in the in their house by themselves. Yeah. That's the way you frame this as as a new model. When you said that at the start, I was skeptical, I'll be honest. And now that you've explained to me, actually, well, you know, think about how we do charity, think about how we do representative governance. And and actually this is just a different way of organizing people around the things they care about. So that really makes sense to me. And you're mentioning some of the projects. I'm wondering, are there any themes across them, Tessie? Like these are the things that people usually, we see them working on together. I think what's very practical, you know, it's it's about everyday stuff. It's cooking, growing, making, sharing, learning. It's inviting children. I think one of the things which has surprised me is the number of people that come in and, and suggest they want to do something which is environmentally positive. I think it's on a lot of people's minds. So anything from, you know, bees to composting to, to allotments to recycling, all of those things are on people's minds. And mm. yeah, it's just really practical, really every day. You know, mm. the, the model in its in its essence we saw is innovative in terms of how it sits against all these next to all these other participation models and the platform approach is a, an innovation but the actual activities are really down to yeah. earth they're really yeah. they're common and and that's the their power because they are common denominator yeah. you know we're we working in a very diverse neighborhood and you don't need language you don't need degrees mm. you don't need heaps of confidence to be invited into into these activities and I think it's mm. that common denominator aspect which is makes this practical participation so powerful and and means that people from all walks of life not, not just sort of inclusive as in please you know everybody's welcome but actually driving the whole model is around inclusivity right down to the diversity of projects making sure there's there's entry points across every single program different times of days different locations mm you know, as close to where people live as possible. So it's actually those inclusivity principles drive everything, mm. everything that we do through the platform. Mm. And I'd love to unpack this idea of a platform a little bit. And this might be where you can start sharing your experience as well here, Hamish, because I, I get a sense from you, this is what has made you interested in participatory cities. And for context, Tessie, a lot of the people listening to the show, they might be working in a council maybe a government agency, but I think this was particularly relevant for our council colleagues who, from what I see, some of them are trying to explore themselves. Well, what is our role to enable communities to get together around the things that, you know, connect them? And so I'd love to hear from you. Well, what does it look like when you take more of this platform approach? Don't know if I'm the most qualified to answer, but I'll have a shot. I mean, we have so many places in, in Auckland, so many facilities, hundreds, hundreds of the things. But I guess what, what I'm noticing about the platform, the first thing is it's not iTunes or something. It's not a digital platform, which is kind of uh -huh. where a lot of our heads go, the, the yeah. first place. It's really about going, if you want to make it really easy for people to get together and 
co-create these projects based on these activities, which are really sort of fundamental to our lives, like cooking, growing things, making things, then what does, what does it take to make that really easy for ordinary people? Mm. And the sort of participatory city answer to that question is kind of like places and highly skilled, well-trained people who know how to do really awesome collaboration design, facilitation, yeah, just amazing skills at working and, and weaving people together mm. and really rigorous, really robust systems, which is probably the part of the thing which scares me the most. Because and what do you mean by systems in that context? Tessie, what are the systems? <laughs> you go. No segue. I guess, I guess another way of, of attacking that, that idea is that at the moment, certainly in the UK, it may be it may have a similar system. Is that a lot of funding is is based on small grants? So we do a lot yeah. of small grants funding. I think I think the last statistic I saw for the the National Lottery in the UK, eighty eight percent of their grants are under ten thousand pounds, and a lot of those are for just one year. So yeah. and they you know they put out millions every year in the mm. in this way. And it's probably um, similar here. Yeah. So. And many, many people are kind of quite wedded to the small grant system because it feels very fair in lots of ways. You know, it's, it's a way of distributing things, but it it really kind of changes neighborhoods. But essentially what happens when you do a lot of small grants in, and if you imagine a neighborhood, you have these projects springing up, getting small grants. They very often don't survive very long because the grants are very short. Mm -hmm. And so what you end up with is lots and lots of mini organizations and they all have to have a committee and a bank account and a sort of method mm. of handling mm. the money because they, they need to. They very often start competing with each other for volunteers. Yeah. They compete with each other for funding. So in lots of ways, the funding creates a, a, a competitive environment. Yeah. And, and so in lots of ways, it's a similar model to sort of capitalistic and I don't mean that in a negative way, but just in a sort of competitive business environment. This model is, if you think about all of those, you know, all of those organizational infrastructures, you, you might have 30 or 40 of them in a neighborhood, which have, you know, many of them have been and gone, pooling that into a single organization, into a single mm. platform where you have one set of infrastructures, insurances, budgets, communications, spaces health and safety all of those things are organized by your organized by the platform for hundreds and hundreds of ideas so what it does mm. it, it releases the need for all of these smaller ideas which will again sort of come up and flourish some of them will replicate some of them will go dormant and it's it supports a whole ecosystem of of activity rather than just funding individual projects and mm. setting up this this collaborative, you know, this competitive environment, because what we've noticed really strongly is that if you grow up together as a co collaborations, you know, in an ecosystem, what we've seen in our, in our reports is that people will get involved in, in many 10, 15 different projects because it's sort of everyday life stuff. Yeah. And in one thing, they might be hosting a, a great cook session. They may be initiating a new idea they might be taking on different roles in different different things mm. so the behaviors that that allows is quite different from people that get attached to one project and basically in neighborhood activity very often become deliverers of community to community yeah. rather than actually having that 
peer-to-peer aspect. Yeah. So the platform is common infrastructures for all of these things to thrive and to to take on a natural rhythm rather than having this mm. sort of, you know, whole set of mini organizations competing with one another. Yeah. Well, we've been having lots of conversations where I live or they've probably been happening forever and I've just been part of some of them recently trying to figure out how do we with all the different community organizations share resources better and it's it's a very similar kind of challenge and opportunity to what you're talking about also i think because of the because of that that model what you tend to see is that people that get involved in community activity because they have to have the confidence and know-how to set up these mini organizations and go through all those hoops mm. you're still it is still only making it available to people with confidence and time yeah. and actually you're excluding a huge amount of people from participation because you know if particularly if you're working in neighborhoods where there's a level of deprivation and Barking Dagenham is the sixth or ninth most deprived borough in the country you we're talking about people who have health issues they they might have two jobs they've got relatives they're looking after they have they have a level of difficulty which makes it impossible for them to get involved in the kind of activity mm. and the, which is why when we started working Barking Dagenham the volunteering rate was half of the national average because right. we, we ask a lot of people even in neighborhoods where people experiencing a lot of difficulties mm. so instead of saying we want you to help us we're saying how can we help you so we're basically mm. turning that model we said this participation is should be useful <laughs> to you should mm. benefit you and your family and here are all the opportunities to do that. It's a different analysis of how yeah. you know things should be built. Oh, Tessie, I'm I'm inspired. And Hamish, I can see why you've connected into this work and why you're you're keen to share it more across Aotearoa. So Tessie, I'm wondering for people listening. You know, if they're curious, they're interested, what's the first step they can take? Well, they need to send an email to Hamish. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let me give you Hamish's email. Seriously. I think, Paul, it's one of the one of the challenges of this work is that this is not small scale stuff. Do you know mm. what I mean? This I think is a is a major solution that needs to be done urgently everywhere. And it, it can't be done piecemeal. It can't be done small scale. It really needs, you know, serious political vision and and proper resourcing. Mm, yeah, right. <laughs> well, Hamish, what's your dream for where this could go in the next 10 years here in New Zealand? There's a, there's a boy called Rory and he has a friend called Adam and and they and and he has a mum called Joe, and they were really into Pokemon trading card. And there was no Pokemon trading card. You you could go over to the mall, but then there was like all these man children playing really intense battles, which weren't very accessible or appealing to primary school children for for obvious reasons. So Rose like. So could we start a Pokemon club here in Glenfield Library? And 
So a library assistant called James sat down with them and, and they're like, well, we could try that. Yeah. So they made a flyer and then Rory took this flyer to all the local schools and had conversations with kids and they tried it once and all these kids came to this Pokemon club and there were things that Rory didn't want to do. Like he didn't want to do the club announcements of like, welcome to the Pokemon club, because that's a very adulty kind of a thing to do. But James, the library assistant who's 30, can't have child to child conversations about, um, <laughs> you know, come to this Pokemon club because I think it's yeah. both. And I saw his mum in the pool in Glenfield a little while ago. I haven't seen her for years, but, but I said, hey, you're Joe, right? Yeah. And we had a little chat and just, you know, how's we're doing and stuff. And then it ended. And then she came up to me afterwards separately one more time and said, like, thank you for that thing, that thing that you guys created at Greenfield Library. Because it really meant a lot to us that that we could say how it went. We could we could create something. So that's really awesome work, and I hope you're still doing that work. That was the night before I did a capability building session in Onihanga, where I'm doing a year-long pilot with, with the team in Onihanga and Oranga. So I sort of took it as a, 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 a sign. I'm a bit of a sort of a wide-eyed mystic about these things. And yeah, man, so I just want to see all the Rory's and all the Joes that be in a system where people feel connected a lot more and me growing up, I guess I didn't feel that connected all the time. So I want to be in a system where that's so much easier than it is, mm. where it's so normal to just like, if you go to some community hubs, there's just a norm of connecting mm. with people and you just can talk to people so easily because they're like, yeah, that's what we do. We just, we <laughs> connect to each other. That's what we do here. Just a system where it's so easy to connect to people and so easy to to do more to do more stuff together, not in these mm. quarter acre silos that we all live in in Western <laughs> society. Mm, and I get a sense that there's a bunch of things happening in our society that are colliding in a nice way here in terms of we've got technology that didn't exist 10 to 20 years ago to allow us to connect and understand these type of ideas, even just what we're doing right now. You know, we've got much greater understanding, I think, of how important connection is and how that relates to so many aspects of our well-being and a greater understanding of loneliness is one of our biggest, you know, the, the silent epidemic. So yeah. I can see that the the soil is rich for this kind of approach to spread. So Tessie, thank you so much for coming and sharing a little bit of the origin story mm -hmm. and explaining it in plain English in a way that just really made sense to me. I really appreciate that. And mm, I just want to want to check if there's anything else you'd like to share with people. I guess one thing I haven't sort of said is that I think that one of the things I feel that this surgence of this new model is also it's also a generational thing i think that this is a, a participation model by a new generation of people and i think that we spend a lot of time trying to get young people into dusty rundown spaces with expecting them to sit there through committee meetings and mm -hmm. you know that that old model and when they don't want to do that it 
is a problem That's with them. Fault. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. And so yeah. I think that, you know, what I've seen through this is that when they design, when they design it, when they design these projects, these are bright, welcoming, lively, creative spaces. And they can, with a lot of interaction, a lot of hands-on stuff, and a lot of means to form relationships with each other rather than relationships with, with the council. And I think that's one of the, the comparisons, I think, with sort of the normal consultation process is that that's about relationships with the council. And this is about relationships between people and I think one of the things I've really struggled with is for elected members to see that's hugely valuable, that even though it, it doesn't come directly to them and it's not about their relationship, it's actually about creating the conditions and the means with it, with which people can create their own outcomes for themselves. Sorry, the outcomes is the wrong word, but, you know, they... The, the people that have been involved in Barking and Dagenham, and we've had thousands of people there who have participated, and they have fundamentally changed what it is like to live in that neighborhood. Mm -hmm. It's not about us. It's not about the platform. It's that they have changed what it feels like to live there by turning up, by being part of, of these activities, by interacting with each other. So that is really the most important part of this, really. One thing, just when I was talking about the new generational wanting to do that I think what I missed out was the fact that it's actually something which then when it comes to life actually feels so familiar to older people do you know what I mean they really recognize it as something that they used to experience but that's been lost so it's not just for young people it might mm. be young people who are showing that this is how they want to be involved in community but actually it resonates very strongly with with older hmm. people as well and I've been to a lot of events with just young people and I've been to a few with just older people and always they both talk about wanting intergenerational connection yeah so, exactly yeah. exactly mm -hmm. thank you Tessie and Hamish any other things that you'd like to share with people listening I just just want to do a shout out to the amazing humans in Onihanga and Orang both on the staff side and the community side so I'm working with the team there and they're slowly growing in confidence and enthusiasm. We're up to like seven participation projects now. <laughs> I was talking to an elderly Māori gentleman who wanted to do a, a session creating art, manu, o, manu Ote, which is traditional Māori kites. Mm -hmm. So he's kind of been the bam, bamboo sticks and the flax and we have to buy the colored wool but that's that collaborative relationship mm -hmm. you know and he was like I'll do a class and I was like but maybe it's not all on you maybe we'll see <laughs> what other crafty ideas people have when they turn up on the day mm -hmm. oh yeah yeah and then we could like and then we could see we could do one from that person that time or one person that time and just this this the staff and onihanga and oranga because they work in a challenging post-covid environment where mm. they get public safety challenges and stuff every day but they are taking steps and trying things and stretching and out of their comfort zones and yeah and tired and and, <laughs> and challenged but also inspired i think so and they're just an awesome group of humans to work with so 
<laughs> yeah, just massive shout out to them. I also want to mention and recognize all the hard work that the team in Highland Park and Pakaranga have been doing with me to test a quite a ambitious aspect of the approach, creating participation projects right out in streets between neighbors, which we've been finding really hard to get going. So just recognize their willingness to try and willingness to to learn even when it's not that easy. And also Sissy Rock and the community think team who are using the participatory city approach to underpin their work in the Neighbours Aotearoa national campaign, which is fostering neighbourly activity between neighbours all over the country and is seeing more and more of a participation culture kind of nature to what's happening emerge. And finally, just want to really, really thank and acknowledge the, the team environment and the team that I'm working in, which is the community innovation team and connected communities, because that's just been such an awesome collaborative and supportive learning environment for me. So yeah, just want to recognize those guys too. Thanks. Awesome. Shout out. And I mean, what we're doing here, I guess, as well, Hamish, is sharing the story of this approach. And, you know, Tessie, when I asked you what what's the first step that people can take, I think a lot of what you're doing, Hamish, is is creating the conditions for more people to be able to step into this way of working and being so thank you to you both for joining me on the show great thank you so much paul thank you for listening to this episode of the beyond consultation podcast what did you learn from the show what should we have talked about who else should i interview i would love to hear your feedback And if you want to learn more about what you heard today, everything from the show is at www.businesslab.co.nz slash podcast. If this episode has left you with a burning question, please feel free to submit a voice message through the link on our podcast page. We can then ask that question of a guest in a future episode. Or tag me in a post on LinkedIn or Facebook and I can point you in the right direction. If you want to know when we release new episodes, make it easier for yourself and subscribe on your podcast platform of choice. Again, thank you for listening. Nā mihi mō te whakarongo.